Well, welcome everyone to episode three of our Sacrificial Succession podcast. I'm Wes Leak from Business Blessings, and it's great to have Paul Rattray with us again. Paul, so good to be with you again. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Wes. It's just, um, yeah, it's a great honour and privilege to uh, be part of this. Paul, you know, we have been chatting before this, and it's, I'm very conscious that this is a complex thing. Succession is a complex thing. And we add sacrificial succession in, and it's a very different thing to the way the world does it. But, but that's actually very common in, in the kingdom of God. Uh, God tends to have a different focus on doing things than what we in the natural have. Yeah, absolutely. So, Paul, the, the title of this episode is Last First. And this actually comes down to how you started to, we're really starting to unpack now some of the nitty gritty about sacrificial succession, but God spoke to you about it through Matthew 2016. Do you want to tell me a bit about yeah. it? I mean, I, f- I find the, the whole passage up to uh, verse 28 of Matthew chapter 20 um, fascinating um, because to me it speaks about the uh, wisdom and insight that Jesus had into the uh, future leadership of um, his, um, you know, disciples, immediate disciples, and right into the future for us now, I believe. Uh, But yeah, it's a fascinating story because it's, it grates with all of the values that we tend to instill into people in any sort of leadership context. And that is whoever starts first comes first, (laughs) you know, and whoever starts first and lasts the longest in a sense should get paid the most. And this parable or story just it challenges all those things. And what I find really interesting about the detail of that is that it's in that the first group, they negotiate what the payments are. It's interesting that those who come later, they say, give us whatever's fair. Um, And I find that interesting that the, the first cohort if you like those who in a sense in the back of their minds knew they would be serving the longest they actually wanted to negotiate uh, and they agreed and then when it came to payment they didn't like the fact that those who had come last were actually put first in terms of being given payment and then what they got was the same as those that had worked all day and so for me that was an absolute aha moment in the context of the crisis that we faced in East Timor because our successors were just like that. Was, you know, to me, that was my epiphany. They came last. There was no way, no way possible that they could ever compete with those people who had served so well for so long. But what was necessary was that they needed to be put first. And in a sense, the payment or the investment needed to be greater within 
that next generation than within those um, who had come before them. And they needed to be the ones investing. They needed, if they weren't willing to make the sacrifice, this wasn't going to happen. And so for me, it was just, it's like, that's how, that's it. That's the answer. That's the answer to the conundrum that we were facing at the time in a country that was completely devastated um, and the people were devastated and traumatized. Uh, We're not talking about well-trained people. We're talking about a first generation um, group of believers who came from terrible backgrounds because of all the trauma uh, that they'd faced. And these were the people, these were our potentials. Paul, I want to pick up on one word that you said in that, and that's compete. You know, often we see that the current leaders are competing with the future leaders coming up and they see these guys as young tykes who are just wanting to take over from them and, and kick them out of the way. But that, but that's not what you're talking about here. Like it, it's a really, it is a mental shift about how, how even one generation of leaders looks at the other generation of leaders. It is a mental shift um, because we're, we're not talking about a competition where there's any possibility that the next generation are going to match up to the former. And, you know, let's just look practically at the story. This is Jesus talking here to his disciples. How on earth are they ever going to match up to his caliber? Yeah. We think of Paul talking to Timothy and Titus. How on earth? could they possibly match up to the caliber of Paul? They can't. It's not a competition. It's about being sacrificial and recognizing that irrespective of the fact that they may not match up to our expectations, they're the people that we've got to work with. And we often say that in our projects because we work in really difficult, hard places. You work with who you've got not with who you would like to have. <laughs> oh, <that's, laughs> you can dwell on that one for a long time. Is, <laughs> is sometimes, uh, you know, you look at David's mighty men and David had like, like the worst of like the outcasts, the ones that had been put aside, the ones that were disgruntled and complaining, but yet he worked with what he had and um, in doing that. And so sometimes we may look at the people that God's given us and think, why have you given me this person? But, but that's also, it's God's perspective on them because he sees things in them that you may not see yourself. That's right. And, and when we think of it in this way, it's a natural understanding as a rule that if you're preparing the next generation of successor, they are going to be inferior to you. Yes. That's just a fact. They haven't got your experience. They haven't got your knowledge. They certainly don't have the life skills if they're younger people or at the younger end of the spectrum. Um, And yet it's interesting even that secular research recognizes that if you want to hang on to your high potential people, you need to put some plans in place that is going to help them stay. Because if they see no potential opportunity for them to be a part of that next generation of leadership, then they're going to fall by the wayside or leave. 
So what you're referring to there is some of the research that uh, yeah. an article Ginny Master put together from the Future of Work in Forbes magazine, where she says finds that the two best ways to retain potential successes is to effectively share the vision and values of the organization. So one and two opportunities for advancement to those that show the greatest potential. That's so right. We, we are seeing particularly in a lot of organizations and more so potentially Pentecostal denominations, there's a huge focus on vision and sharing the vision, uh, but not so much focus on giving people opportunities for advancement within. Yeah. And I think that happens in a lot of organizations too. And it, I think it particularly happens in organizations where the founders or the people who started the organization, they are the visionaries and they carry the vision with them and they carry the vision in a sense, very close to their hearts. Um, And yet that part of what is so critical in this whole process of sacrificial succession is passing on and imparting that vision in such a way that they can continue to do the the work that was started by the founder. Okay, so Paul, here's a question for you. How soon do we start preparing successes? Like someone's just been appointed newly to a, a leadership position or they've started an organisation. How soon do you start working? Well, we, we, we learned this in the case of East Timor because it was you know, we were faced with a crisis. Um, and so what we, do, we did, we had to backtrack a little bit. And so the first questions that we asked when we started talking about potential successes was, who are those people that have actually demonstrated over time a willingness to be servants? And it's really interesting, again, if you look into this passage in Matthew chapter 20 is that um, there are some key terms that are used um, here that were very helpful to me. And I think a lot of us, you know, we're well aware of those, um, but there are two terms that come up uh, in um, Matthew chapter uh, 20, verse uh, 26 and 27, And the first one uh, is the word diakonos, which we know quite well relates to deacon. Uh, It also relates to the word minister. We often relate that now to a reverend or minister for churches, but minister is also something that's used in the Westminster system, the word minister. And that's someone who executes the commands of another. And it's interesting that the insights into that Uh, It says someone who advances others' interests, even at the sacrifice of their own. And so I often term that serving through leadership. And then the next verse talks about doulos or a slave. It's literally talking about someone who's also a bond servant, someone who chooses to serve without expectation. And so one of the things that we did Uh, in East Timor, and we've done it in all of our projects since, especially in the fields where things are really difficult, is we are not necessarily identifying the most competent person initially. 
what we are identifying is people who are willing to serve without expectation. In some ways, I tend to put verse 27 before 26, because we are more interested in seeing how someone serves without expectation before we want to give them a chance to see how they serve through leadership. Um, and so that's what we did. We said, who are the people in our um, project? Um, and we didn't have, we had two potentials at the time and only one of them worked out. Um, but who are the people that we've known over the last few years that have demonstrated these qualities? Let's not think about competencies for now, skills in doing things, but have demonstrated these qualities in an ongoing way without any expectation. Um, that's the first point of contact that we had with those people was to see, do they serve without expectation? Uh, without expectation as individuals and then secondly once they're given some leadership um, authority and responsibility how then do they serve others through those roles and so that's what we were watching for and based on the, this um, this model we said okay um, some of these people are quite competent but they are not demonstrating these qualities of serving without expectation, or once they're given the role in leadership, they are not serving through their leadership, which disqualifies them. We are not going to go the course with those people. And so plenty of potentials um, were simply um, erased from the process until, unless or until they could actually demonstrate that they were beginning to develop those qualities. And we worked with people and we often found that um, working with them, they would start to develop those qualities because that's what we expected. And, you, you know, so you're not just picking anyone to be a leader here to, to go on. You are giving people the opportunity and you're kind of like almost testing them, if you like, by doing that to see what qualities they are and, and are they willing to serve without expectation and then taking them forward. But you're also watching the others that kind of that next category of people down because they just may not be in that right place to do that at that time. But as they even mature in age um, or they mature in taking on other responsibilities that you can see them and say, Hey, hang on, they're a potential leader. That's right. And that's why it's so important to be mentoring and discipling people. So very few people, and this is perhaps where I would disagree with someone like Robert Greenleaf, the great Quaker who wrote the Servant Leadership um, book. It's interesting if you look at where he drew some of his um, inspiration, perhaps came from some questionable sources. Um, but broadly, his point was that servant leadership is something that's naturally occurring within certain people. I would be inclined to disagree with that. It's not natural. It's something that is intentionally developed often uh, by others encouraging these and modeling these characteristics, which people develop over time. And you're spot on. Not everybody is going to develop 
in exactly the same way. And so we're not saying you give no chances to nobody, but who directly shows these characteristics right now. No, not at all. People develop at certain points and they'll often come to that particular, I can remember one of the guys that we worked with who's become a fantastic successor of our work in a very difficult country in the Asia Pacific. Um, early on, he didn't have those characteristics and he didn't have that heart. And as he said to me over time, he said, you know, being exposed to these characteristics and seeing my leaders modeling them, that's what turned me around and gave me a heart for what I'm doing. And now I'm leading my country uh, in impacting the nation. And so it took time. Yeah. One could dare argue that Paul was in that situation <laughs> because he, like prior, um, prior to him getting saved, you know, as Saul, he, it was very much about him, uh, uh, although he did have people who worked for him. But, but when he got saved, uh, he, he had to go through this period of discipleship and mentorship and training. Um, and, yeah, and God took him on that journey. And it's interesting, you know, depending on how much you read into this passage, some have suggested that this passage is, a, is perhaps a prophecy that of, of Jesus about people like Paul yeah. or perhaps Paul himself. Um, and that is, you know, because Paul himself said, I'm the last and the least of the apostles. And yet, if you think about it, um, he possibly became one of the greatest apostles, certainly the greatest missionary apostle or pioneering apostle. Um, and yet, uh, what if the powers that be, like Peter, had decided, well, you didn't show those characteristics early on, so we're not going to give you this opportunity. Um, so we need to keep that in mind. Uh, and it's an interesting aside, but perhaps there's, uh, there's some truth in that. Jesus was referring to people like Paul or perhaps was directly referring to Paul as being the last and least. That's a, that's a fascinating thing to ponder. But it, it, let's look more at Paul because he, um, he did prepare success as well. But he also, but there were also times that he said to some people, Hey, I don't think you should be with me anymore for a season and then pulled them back. Yeah. It's very interesting um, because I've looked at that closely in terms of when we choose people for certain roles. Um, I think that oftentimes we choose perhaps people who are pastoral or maybe in the corporate uh, scene, they tend to be managerial. You know, they're good shepherds. They're good at bringing the flock together and keeping the flock in the same place. Um, and I suspect that people like Timothy and Titus, who were uh, Paul's successors, that's what he prepared them and chose for them. But it's interesting when you look at, say, the dispute that Paul had with Barnabas, and we know Barnabas was pastoral because it says he's the son of encouragement was his name. Yet when they went, on their missionaries journey, their pioneering work, Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark. And uh, Paul said, no, 
because he's not he's not cut out for pioneering work. And they had a big dispute because um, from Barnabas's worldview, he's perfect to be going out with us. Paul understood he's not a John Mark's not a pioneer. And it's interesting that later on, when Paul was imprisoned, he said, send John Mark to me because he'll be of encouragement to me when he needed a pastoral person and a managerial type person, someone who could take care of things, you know, bring my jacket. Remember to bring my jacket because I'm cold. He was, he recognized that within John Mark were those qualities, but perhaps not the qualities or characteristics for doing pioneering work on the front line. And so being able to choose people that suit those particular roles is also important. Um, and recognizing, you know, there are certain characteristics amongst people and trying to force them to do something that is not within uh, their skill set or their, the, the way they're called and the way that they are gifted. Um, it's just, a, it doesn't work. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's so true, isn't it? That there, but but that's one of the the things about a leader is knowing, knowing the task that needs to be done and matching the right person with that task, and knowing too that that may actually only be for a season, as well. Yeah, and it's recognizing as well that we tend to choose people that are like us. Yeah, and so you know we in the work that we do, a vital. Uh, partner in our work are pastoral people and pastors but we consistently need to remember and we remind them that when we're doing pioneering work we're not necessarily looking for pastors we're looking for pioneers and we often find that uh, if you're a pastoral person someone who tends to be a manager to look after things and care for things you will tend to choose people like that and that in, in certain cases, they may not be the people that you need, as Paul understood when he was going on his missionary journey, but Barnabas didn't. He didn't get it. Paul, that's, that's a very good point, but it's also a very painful point because it is, well, it's, it's much easier to choose someone like me to work with. And, and look, I know that there's a certain character trait of person that I can't work with. It just, we're going to clash too much and, and all that. And, and it's a very narrow personality type, but when I see it, I see it very plainly and I know to step away. But but others, I know that, okay, we may not get on, we may not be a natural fit. I have to work at it, but but that's part of it as well because that's part of you growing and learning, but it's also part of them seeing that they actually have to work with people who are not like them as well. Absolutely. And I mean, as someone much wiser than me said, iron sharpens iron. And so it's sometimes when you have these clashes <laughs> uh, that you sharpen things up. And so we recognize that in the sort of work that we do, there is a natural tension between pastoral people and pioneering people uh, who, of course, include entrepreneurial people. Yeah. Um, and that natural tension when it's working together is actually very powerful. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's, you just have to recognize that if you choose those sorts of people to be part of your team, there'll be a few sparks, but you don't tend to get a sharp blade 
if you don't have a few sparks. Yeah, that's right. And and actually not to be concerned by the fact that there is sparks because it's um, like I, I always used to worry about that. Oh, I'm not getting on with them or something's going on. But it actually gives you an opportunity to sit down and have a discussion and to actually strengthen the relationship between the two of you as well. It does. Yeah. It, that tension is always challenging but it's a good challenge we, we've found in most cases it's it's positive yes you're moving forward like that okay so we talk about the main success and problems are that either leaders stay too long or they stay too short uh, and but but also the focus needs to be on um your successes and this is one of the things that um, that I've been wrestling with as we've been working through this, because you say the sacrificial succession, the greatest gift or legacy imparted is the sacrifice of leadership by the predecessor at the time that most benefits the successor and not you. So that, that is painful for some people. <laughs> it's extremely painful because it might mean that you forego a better job but because you've committed to stay on for a period of time to make sure that your successor is well prepared and you're helping them, or it may mean that you, in a sense, hand over earlier, much earlier than most people would expect and you would expect, which of course makes it difficult on the other end as well, because you're not holding on to your power as long as you possibly could. Um, and I always, you know, when I was sort of thinking through this, I, I always think by analogy. Um, and, and for me, I thought about it, it's sort of waves. When you have a wave that really peaks, it's really going to crash down. Yeah. Um, and it's not pretty. You usually get dumped. Um, whereas if you have waves that are rolling, then it makes everything so much easier um, to be able to prepare, hand over, and just continue to help to be an advocate for that person for a period of time. And so, yes, uh, when you're thinking about your successor rather than yourself, that's sacrificial and that's hard. Actually, Paul, you just remind me of our prime minister, John, one of our past prime ministers, John Howard, you know, he, he didn't get the succession right and crashed quite badly. The fact that he was even voted out of his own electorate, uh, I think was very telling that he didn't handle this, the, um, the succession correctly. And really, we, we went we went into a, a period of very a lot of political instability uns, because we had a this whole series of prime ministers after a very long serving prime minister because that succession wasn't handled correctly absolutely <laughs> that's a case in point and if you think about some really great leaders um you think about someone like nelson mandela and his predecessor fw de Klerk. um what if F.W. de Klerk had said, no way, there's not a chance I'm going to hand over to you, Nelson. Um, and the same way, there, there's 
a requirement of mutual humility. What if Nelson Mandela had not been humble enough to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take this mantle, but I'm not going to abuse it. And you look at his successors. um, You've just got to say that he didn't prepare anyone. uh, Well, and unfortunately, the people that have come after him have not done a good job of running South Africa. And there are so many examples of that around the world. And yet F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela are such great examples of a really good and sacrificial transition and succession um, politically. And yet from then on, uh, you could argue that uh, I think quite quite safely that it's been a very poor quality um, leadership transition since then. So which really comes down to the cost of getting this wrong is actually quite high. And it's not just the economic cost within the organisation. It's the cost of people, but it's also the cost of, um, like, obviously, politically, you've got millions of people in that country that get affected by those things. But even in, um, like, I think of a church situation that I was involved in where the succession didn't work out the way we hoped it would be, like it decimated a church of 300 people. And, and a lot of those people haven't gone to church since. And, but that also has ramifications for their families, their friends. Like it's just, it's not just the people directly involved. It's, it's, it's the whole ecosystem. If you use that. That's right. That kind of it, that's right. The, the knock on effects are just massive. Uh, you know, and in our case, uh, say in the case of East Timor and the other places, w- we can't afford to have that happen because we are working in such crisis and conflict-ridden countries. In, in other places, even though it's tragic, as you rightly note, um, we can perhaps in some cases absorb some of the collateral damage. Hopefully we can get someone else in and hopefully we can, you know, get things fixed up again or patched up. But you were also mentioning, um, you know, when we think about, say, small business and family-owned business. Um, and I was particularly interested in the Australian context because I have a lot to do with farm farming and farmers. Um, the huge number of farmers who are, around you know 55 years of age they're getting towards retirement age and yet for the vast majority they've got no one to take over from their farms and i suppose if you think about it well when they sell that's going to be their super Um, and if that was what they intended uh, then that's fine but i think that there are so many business owners who really would like things to continue but they've not prepared anyone to be able to do that and they wait too long and when it when the time comes they've not got anyone who's able to be trustworthy enough to take over from them and to me that's tragic that's tragic for a farming family uh, who's had a farm in their family for generations unless that's specifically what they want to do is finish but I think of other businesses and the incredible contribution that those visions 
uh, you know, have made, even if it's a small business. Um, unless, of course, it was specifically designed to end. Yes. yes. There are cases where something should not continue. It should die, fall into the ground and yes. regrow again. But there are things that need continuity. Yes. And yet we're not, we, we find that we're not putting those steps into place and people into place. And that's what we found in East Timor. We had a great vision. We had a wonderful group of people, but we hadn't thought through and made preparations for what was going to be an eventuality anyway. Okay, Paul, we're running out of time for today, but key points. Uh, I think we need to encourage people to go back and actually read Matthew 20 for themselves and, and take the time to work through that and allow God to speak to them about that. But the other thing is, who who are you... Um, who's on your radar for succession? Who are the people within your organisation that you can start to even test now? Uh, it's always a good test and measure. is always a good word for, for business uh, to use, to, to choose those people, to, to start to give them some opportunities to see if they could potentially be successes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it takes time. You know, we were talking about, um, you know, one of or some of the greatest leaders who've ever lived, and that's Jesus Christ and um, Paul the Apostle. Uh, they took around about three years to be able to vet people, spend time, mentor them, prepare them, and then uh, hand over. And so this, it takes time. It's not something that just, well, here's my checklist and here we go. Uh, it really takes time to build into people's lives to be able to see how they serve without expectation as an individual with no expectation of being given a leadership opportunity. You know, how do they treat other people? Once they're leaders, how do they treat their peers? But more importantly, how do they tend to treat people that they see as subordinate? Not when they're in front of you, but I, I always like to hear, you know, how's so, how are you going with so-and-so? Um, how do they treat you? Um, and we often find that that's the best way to gauge how someone's going. And so it, it takes time. It's not something that, that you can just make a snap decision on and, you know, go to the seek pages and put in an advertisement and I'm looking for someone to replace me. This is about working through over at least a few years or a couple of years um, and going back and looking back, you can always do an audit based on these characteristics and look back and see, you know, how's so-and-so gone? How has she been in these areas? How has he shown himself to be a good servant to others um, when nobody was watching, nobody uh, was expecting uh, anything of him in terms of leadership, but how did he handle that at that particular time? We can go back and we can look and we can get a picture of how that person was and who they were. Um, and to me, I believe that that's far more important than specific skills 
or competencies? Because often you can teach those skills and competencies, but if their character isn't right, that's a that's a very different thing. Yeah, well, that's harder to deal with. <laughs> it is. Well, thank you so much for today, Paul. I look forward to continuing with you. Uh, next time uh, in episode four, we're going to be looking at true succession. Uh, but bless you. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.